Hello and welcome to the first episode of Bad Gaze, a podcast where we uncover the dark side of gay men in history. I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and novelist whose work is mainly about sex, cities and history. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, gay historian and a member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And each episode we'll be profiling a different gay villain from history. Each of these characters have incredibly compelling stories and there's value in looking at why people with complicated lives do bad things. So why are we doing this podcast? Why bad gays? To get a little academic for a second, uh, the primary emergency of gay history in its first decades was to uncover and to restore histories of gay movements and of gay heroes. And while the culture of academic research has certainly moved on from that, the public conversation really hasn't. So we want to use our bad boys to complicate these stories of gay history. We're going to be talking about some people who are unequivocally bad, people like fascists and serial killers and their collaborators. We're going to be talking about people who society thinks is bad, but who maybe we think are a little more complicated. And finally, we're going to talk about figures who might have done great things with bad intentions or done bad things with great intentions. So why don't we remember these people as part of gay history? When we remember our gay heroes, we're very keen to look at how their relationships with their sexuality and public perceptions of that was intrinsically linked with their achievements. But conversely, with our bad boys, how is their badness and their sexuality related? What do we choose to remember and why do we choose to forget some things? For our first episode, we're profiling a man who is quite incontrovertibly a bad egg. Ben, who is our first subject? Our first subject is Ernst Röhm. Now you're going to say that with me, Hugh? Do you want to try it once? Ernst Röhm. Ernst Röhm, not bad. Um, Ernst Röhm was a gay Nazi um, and was the leader of the SA, the Sturmabteilung, or the brown shirts, who are a fascist uh, paramilitary uh, that are part of the Nazi party before they come to power. And I think we can use this as an interesting opportunity to discuss links between homosexuality and homosociality, which is a big academic word that means men socially associating with other men in ways that aren't necessarily sexual, um, and fascism. So ever since Scott Lively's book, The Pink Swastika, was published in 1995, and that's a sort of hate screed about how uh, the gays are responsible for Nazism, it's been pretty difficult, especially in the American public conversation, to talk about associations between homosexuality and European fascism without giving credence to the conspiracy theories of bigots. Um, so to be clear, as we sort of talk about this theme of gays and fascism, queer people as a group were primarily the victims rather than the perpetrators of German fascism. Um, the work of scholars like Anna Haikova and Jens Dobler and Andreas Pretzel and others has recovered a lot of stories of gay persecution and gay resistance during the period of Nazi rule. There's no unique gay quality as lively, quote-unquote, argued in that 1995 book that makes us more likely to be fascists or mass murderers. But there are some surprising connections between some of the sort of German gay theorists who are referred to as masculinist and coincident and following fascist and anti-Semitic movements. So there's a scholar named Andrew Wackerfuss who wrote a book a couple years ago called Stormtrooper Families, Homosexuality and Community in the Early Nazi Movement. And the book argues that fascist paramilitaries arguing that World War I, the loss in the war, had emasculated Germany, sought to restore the potency of the state. Wackerfuss points out a powerful collective association between male sexual power and male military power which was exploited by stormtrooper bands, which promised and delivered homoerotic and homosocial experiences to their members, even as they violently denounced and even murdered queer-identifying people. 
So one of the things that Wackerfuss does really well, I think, is to place the emergence of these fascist paramilitaries into a fuller social context. So by the mid-1920s, Germany is at least one decade into a robust debate about and between queer people that was enabled by lax censorship laws. And I think books like Robert Beachy's Gay Berlin and uh, Laurie Marhofer's Sex in the Weimar Republic have done a nice job of talking about the kind of contours of that debate if people want to read more. Um, but to give a very kind of broad overview, uh, figures like Magnus Hirschfeld, the Jewish socialist sexologist, had begun arguing as early as the late 19th century that same-sex erotic acts were part of an identity that had a history and it had shared characteristics. And for them, those characteristics arose from a variety of physical and psychological differences. So, for example, Magnus Hirschfeld ends up talking about hundreds of sexual intermediate steps, or Zwischenstufe, between fully heterosexual and gender conforming, and fully homosexual and non-gender conforming. Um, in contrast, there was a movement led by a journal called Der Eigene, and figures like Adolf Brand, which declared that their same-sex attraction had nothing to do with gender bending. They tended to focus more on histories of Greek and Roman homosexuality, and they created this sort of potent, frothy mix of proto-fascist politics, misogyny, and anti-Semitism, identifying the virility of a charismatic male leader as the core of identity, of a, rather as the core of a gay identity, and as the source of all human progress. And as Laurie Marhofer has pointed out, these fascist paramilitaries were actually led by Ernst Rehm, who becomes the world's first openly gay politician. Rehm was the leader of the SA and was a very high-ranking Nazi until he was purged in the Night of the Long Knives in late June of 1934. And just to clarify, the uh, the SA were a uh, commonly known as the Brown Shirts, and they're the sort of um, street movement who you know fought communists in street battles, whereas the SS were the more elite form of Hitler's bodyguard who became uh, later on a state within a state who were the um, perpetrators and organizers of the final solution. Yeah. So Marhofer, in an essay written for the Notches blog, which is a really great resource for people who are interested in the history of sexuality, um, uncovered a long-forgotten essay that was written in um, a journal published by Hirschfeld's Circle. And the essay is called National Socialism and Inversion, and it gives us a really interesting view um, of the kind of ideology of queer fascism. The essay was not written by Rehm, but was written by a stormtrooper who was in his circle. And the way that he identifies himself, the writer, is really interesting. He notes that he hates homosexuality, uh, which for him means gender inversion, communism, and Judaism, all the fun stuff. Um, and again, this may have been tied to the fact that Germany's most visible homosexual rights activist at the time is Magnus Hirschfeld, who's a socialist Jew. And the way he describes his own feelings is not as homosexuality, but as quote-unquote manly eros. And for him, manly eros is spiritual. It's experienced discreetly among, quote, healthy and respectable people in the Nazi militia. And Marhofer points out that this is not the public queer culture of Germany in the 1920s. When we think of the movie Cabaret and we think of the writings of Isherwood and Auden and Stephen Spender, we think about dance halls and cruising grounds, and we think about rent boys and drag queens. Um, this is a discrete masculine eros that can be compatible with Aryan racial ideology. Mm -hmm. And for this writer, it's actually foundational to his fascism. And in some ways, these masculinist um, gay fascists saw themselves as actually superior to the heterosexual ones. There's a quote in a book called Getting Hitler into Heaven, where Rehm is quoted as saying, 
he, Hitler, is thinking about the peasant girls. When they stand in the fields and bend down at their work so you can see their behinds, that's what he likes, especially when they've got big round ones. That's Hitler's sex <laughs> life. What a man. And so Reim deceived himself when he thought that his closeness to Hitler would allow him to survive while other German homosexual men were being persecuted. Reim was not murdered because he was homosexual, but the fact that he was gave his enemies a means of turning Hitler against him and of getting him out of power and of securing his destruction and his murder. So let's get into Reim's life story. And a lot of this research is done via a great website called Spartacus Educational, written by a fellow named John Simkin. And the two kind of key things to remember about Reim is that he presented himself as a quote-unquote rational anti-Semite, and also that he was actually more sympathetical to his radical opponents on the left than to centrists. And so in, maybe in some way we'd think of him as a Strasserite. Uh, Reim would remember that his father was domineering and harsh. In his memoirs, he recalled that, quote, from my childhood, I had only one thought and wish, to be a soldier. He joined the German army in 1906, and two years later had reached the rank of lieutenant. And he was a fanatical soldier who was really devoted to and in love with the acts of war and killing. He always saw himself as a simple soldier and hated what he saw as the vice and luxury of other officers. He would always prefer the company of kind of the simple men in the trenches. Mm. Um... After his service in World War I in 1919, he meets Hitler and is immediately compelled by this vision of a racially pure and masculinely powerful Germany. He's an interesting physical type. He's a big sort of bear of a man with a mustache and close-cropped hair, much in the style of today's urban gay men. And the men he's into are more slender and youthful and blonde, but still very masculine. So after World War I, he was a leader of one of the Freikorps uh, right-wing militias. And the militia he was a leader of was hired by the Social Democratic president of Germany to overturn and overthrow the communist government of Munich in 1919. And it was also Freikorps militias in Berlin that killed Rosa Luxemburg. Um, because uh, his militia was ruling Munich uh, briefly after the 1919 overthrow, he was actually able to save Hitler's life uh, when a lot of people who, like Hitler, were suspected, in Hitler's case falsely, of being socialists and communists, were executed. And he slowly built up his militia and his paramilitary power in Bavaria over the first years of the 1920s. He was accused by Goebbels of using his position to seduce young men in the early days of the Nazi party. And Hitler knew about this, but tolerated it because Reim was such a kind of organizing military genius. Goebbels wrote in his diary on 27th of February 1927 that Reim was, quote, nauseating and said that the party should not be an Eldorado for homosexuality. I will fight against that with all of my power. Eldorado in that case is a reference to an infamous Berlin uh, nightclub, a drag nightclub. Okay. So after the Beer Hall Putsch in 1923, Reim was able to avoid imprisonment. And so when all of the other Nazi leaders are in jail, he becomes one of the most powerful people in the party. And at this time, he meets the man who becomes his lover until his death, Edmund Heines. Heines, who was later described as having, quote, a girlish face on the body of a truck driver, <laughs> developed a reputation for violence and sexual perversion. In May 1927, Hitler expelled him from the Nazi party for having loose morals, but others claimed it was because he was overheard calling the Führer, quote, a dish rag. And Reim protested the, the decision, and eventually the two of them were allowed back into the party, uh, this comes from Louis Snyder's Encyclopedia of the Third Reich. Um, 
Highness, along with Raim, would end up being killed in the Night of the Long Knives. So during this period when Highness has been expelled from the party, Raim resigns in protest and travels around South America. And he writes some letters back to friends uh, from Bolivia in 1928, which would later be published by left-wing journalists. Um, letters talking about how, you know, the attitude towards homosexuality here is so much more advanced, etc., etc. And these are letters um, which end up making his homosexuality open. Um, what does he mean by advanced in that, in that situation? Um, advanced according to his sort of principles of an all-male environment, a, a masculinist environment, or advanced just as in sort of more tolerant as we might see it today? Interestingly, I think what he means is more tolerant as we might see it today, hmm. um, which is interesting. I think it's always interesting when people's political commitments go against the things that they kind of directly need or want out yeah. of their experience of interaction with the state. So... In 1931, investigations are opened by the Berlin State Attorney for Unnatural Offenses against uh, paragraph 175 of the Penal Code, which was the uh, law against homosexuality. Um, the history of that law is interesting. So that is a law that dates back to the unification of Germany under the Prussian Legal Code in 1870. The penalties are sharpened in uh, by the Nazis when they come in. Um, after World War II in West Germany, the Nazi-era penalties are kept on the books until mm -hmm. 1969, um, when they are brought down, and then the entire law is not eliminated until 1995. Um, and actually, in East Germany, the Nazi-era persecutions are gotten rid of much quicker, um, which I think is an interesting little fact. So, um, again, when Rehm keeps getting in trouble for these sort of homosexual acts, but Hitler doesn't care because the brown shirts were so good at attacking meetings of social democrats and communists. And it's interesting that these paramilitaries, which are initially hired by social democrats to attack and kill communists, end up attacking and killing both groups, thus proving the lasting political value of centrism. So social democratic party associated journalists tried to publicize in the early years of the 1930s Reim's sexuality and use it to argue that this was hypocrisy on the case of the Nazis. And then interestingly, some bad gays that we're going to talk about later in this season would use Reim's homosexuality to argue that the Nazis wouldn't actually persecute homosexual people. Um, the stories of Reim's homosexuality spread beyond the borders of Germany. Time magazine in 1932 wrote that, quote, all Germany knew about the greedy, sensual, plug-ugly face of Ernst Rehm and his bull-like philandering with effeminate young men. So after Hitler comes to power, he avoided giving Rehm any sort of official public office, although Rehm maintained an enormous amount of power as kind of the spiritual leader of the um, paramilitaries. And by 1934, he was antsy and agitating for political change. Uh, again, Reim was someone who was more comfortable with some of the economic ideals of the communists than he was with the industrial center. He wanted a kind of radical change in governance towards a sort of militaristic, even kind of um, right-wing socialist Volkskörper. Um, or what we might call a brown-red coalition today. Yeah, sort of Strasserite, perhaps. Mm. Um Volkskörper is an interesting word. It means body of the people, um, which is a racist idea. And there's a great quote from a German um, theorist named Klaus Tevelite in a book called Male Fantasies, Männerfantasien. And Tevelite writes, quote, 
the relationship of human bodies to the larger world of objective reality grows out of one's relationship to one's own body and to other human bodies. The relationship to the larger world, in turn, determines the ways in which these bodies speak of themselves, of objects, and of relationships to objects. So you get this racist idea of the body of the people, what the historian Sandra Maas refers to as, quote, an imagined community of bodies which contained an analogy between an individual body and the social body of a community. So you can see how that idea can, can quickly transform ideas of personal health into ideas of racial and mm -hmm. social health. So the Night of the Long Knives comes about as a moment when Hitler is trying to protect the existing Nazi leadership against the perceived disloyalty um, and inconvenience of the original SA leadership. And this is around the same time that a lot of the Strasserite figures are removed systematically from the movement and from politics. Um, again, when people try to use red-brown alliances to claim that there was some alliance between socialism and Nazism, we only need remember that the very first thing the Nazis did when they got into power, well, not the first thing, they waited a year, but was to get rid of any kind of left economic voices within their movement and to immediately ally themselves with the industrialists and the capitalists who they perceived as having more power, probably correctly. Um, so on the evening of June 28th, 1934, Hitler telephoned Rehm to convene a conference of the SA leadership. Rehm seems to have thought that this conference would be... Uh, time when the change, government would be changed to be oriented more in the direction he sought, and instead um, he was shot along with Highness and 200 to 250 other people, less than half of whom were actually SA officers. So it was the high-ranking people in the SA, other figures in the party who had been accused of homosexuality, and the Strasserites. Goebbels later writes in his diary, quote, I pointed out to the Führer at length that in 1934 we unfortunately failed to reform the Wehrmacht when we had an opportunity of doing so. What Rehm wanted was, of course, right in itself, but in practice it could not be carried through by a homosexual and an anarchist. Had Rehm been an upright, solid personality, in all probability some hundred generals rather than some hundred SA leaders would have been shot on June 30th. The whole course of events was profoundly tragic, and today we are feeling its effects." So in an attempt to erase Rehm from history, all known copies of a 1933 Riefenstahl propaganda film called The Victory of Faith were destroyed, and then uh, the film was reshot the next year and is now known as The Triumph of the Will. Now comes the part of the show where we awkwardly ask people for money. We don't have any sponsors and we're not beholden to any big media company. We made this because we think these are important stories to tell and we want to be able to keep sharing them with you. And so, in proper idealistic millennial style, we've got a Patreon for you to check out. And Patreon is a way for people to support creators, good gays like us, to keep making the things that they make. So our Patreon is at www.patreon.com slash badgayspod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash badgayspod. And we've got a lot of great rewards for you. If you give five bucks or more a month... We'll send you a recommended reading list every month with the latest publications from me and Hugh and some other articles on queer political topics that we think are essential reading. Including stuff from the dark corners of the internet that might not be so easy to find. Higher tiers include physical gifts like zines and novels. Whatever you give is really appreciated and we thank you so much for your support. That's patreon.com slash badgayspod. 
And saying nice things is always free, so if you're enjoying the show, you can rate us five stars and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new audiences. Thanks. Okay, so I have some questions about Ernst Rehm. 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 Do you think that his his relationship with um, the army and the appeal of the army to him was uh, something that emerged out of his masculinist homosexual urges or the, does does it emerge as an like uh, his homosexuality emerge within the army as an ideology of because you said he, he enjoyed spending time you know with the lower ranks and with this sort of camaraderie do you think that emerged into a, a form of homosexual desire that he could make work with his far right leanings or, or or was it the other way around was was he attracted to that because he, he liked being with those men the whole time well it's a kind of a chicken and egg scenario i think i mean how do we think gay desire is formed and arises do we think it's something that shows up fully formed in someone's biology do we think it's something that comes from someone's social environment and from their upbringing do we think it's something that's situational Um, those certainly aren't questions that I've fully answered for myself. Um, I think in this case, it's a sort of set of leanings and environments that evolve together. Um, it certainly seems like all of the principal erotic and romantic attractions and relationships in his life were with men Mm. and not with women. So it's not that there was some period of youthful heterosexuality that's then interrupted by uh, kind of a gay period started in the army. Um, yeah. And again, I mean, the other thing we need to do, um, and we're not being very careful with this right now, and I think we're just not going to be very careful with it throughout this podcast, and I think that's fine, but we should be clear that we're not being careful with it, is these distinctions that we're making or not making between words like gay and homosexual and of queer. Course, yeah. And, you know, I spend a fair bit of time at academic conferences and engaging in academic conversations around homosexuality where these terminology debates really come to occupy an enormous amount of space. And on the one hand, I respect and understand why that is, because it's incredibly important to be precise about language and to kind of listen to people when they tell you what they are. Um, On the other hand, I think for the purposes of something like this, um, those micro-debates about language can come to be a little bit immobilizing. Sure. I mean, I think sometimes those debates about language have been used to actually write gay and queer and homosexual stories out of history. You know, you get the classic examples of figures who you can prove that there's letters where they're telling friends of the same or similar gender that they love them, and, and they miss them, and they'll never see them like again. Close and that's read as a close yeah. friendship yeah. because you know, can you prove they fucked? And yeah. so, I, I think for what we're doing, being a little bit purposefully imprecise is maybe not the worst thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, how, yeah, it's while he. What's fascinating, I think, for for a modern audience uh, with our sort of perhaps assumptions about the early 20th century and the other assumptions about the far right is that even though he might not say have identified what well, he couldn't have identified as, as gay because that's a later sort of development but maybe he wouldn't have thought of his homosexuality as an intrinsic or as, as a key part of his social identity he also 
didn't he was in no way ashamed of his his homosexuality uh, at all well i think he did think about his sexuality as a key part of his identity I just think he didn't think of it as being homosexuality in this kind of liberal, socialist, Hirschfeldian, Jewish way. Sure. I think he thought of it as being a kind of manly spirit um, based around this idea of male sexual potency and male superiority. And after all, what could be more male and more superior if you believe that men are superior, which clearly we're not, clearly we're much worse. I think that's one <laughs> of the reasons why all of the people on this first season are men, because men are much more bad than women and trans people. Um Cis men are definitionally the most bad, but what could be more superior if you believe all of this than men who spend all of their social and erotic time around men? Mm -hmm. um, there's a gay masculinist uh, writer named Benedict Friedländer who'll end up writing that um, the reason why so many great uh, cultural figures were he wouldn't say gay, but so many great cultural figures were man-manly lovers is because they didn't have any women around to suck out their vital energy. And that's literally the language he uses. So I think Reim actually fits perfectly into this kind of um, conversation. The other thing that I'll add is that it's not all at all incompatible, right-wing politics and homosexuality... Uh, then or now, I mean, so, there's a there's a shocking number. Um, well, not really shocking, but I think shocking if you don't think about this stuff a lot. Of far right politicians who are gay, even maybe a disproportionate number. Um, figures like Alice Videl, who's the current leader of the neo fascist um, and in some departments openly neo Nazi Alternative uh, für Deutschland (AfD) party in Germany. Um, Jörg Haider, who's one of the founders of the Austrian far-right in the first kind of far-right boomlet of the late 1990s. Pim Fortuyen, um, the Dutch, uh, the first sort of Dutch uh, far-right resurgent figure in the late 90s. So, Nikki, Nikki Crane in the UK, yeah. leader of a sort of skinheads in the 1980s. Absolutely. So these things are very much not incompatible at any point in history, whether sure. James or ours. Um, just to go back um, on that, the, it might not have been incompatible, perhaps in the early, in, in the uh, in, in the nineteen twenties and thirties with um, with sort of, sort of fascist ideology. But do you think that the specifically the Nazi opposition to homosexuality, and especially as it played out once they were in power with persecutions and later the um, uh, destruction of uh, homosexuals, queer people, and trans people in the Holocaust, was an intrinsic part of uh, a, a Nazi ideology, or was it that they were opposed to um, specifically the more Hirschfeldian, socialist, gay, cosmopolitan aspects of a sort of separate gay scene? Well, I think it's both, really. I think, first of all, the Nazis are enormously invested in ideas of racial, social, and sexual health and hygiene. So there's a lot of focus, as we talked about the Volkskörper earlier, a lot of focus on that. And that, of course, means in this sort of eugenic way, producing racially pure and healthy babies. And so anything that gets in the way of the baby making uh, is bad and dangerous and to be feared and a threat. Um, part of that idea of racial health also has a lot to do with gender conformity. And so the idea that homosexuality is going to enable masculine women and feminine men is very scary to the Nazis, as it has been to many other right-wing figures mm -hmm. over the course of human history. Um, I think it's very interesting that one of the first 
book burnings of the Nazis after they got into power, and it's kind of become one of the definitional images of the Nazi rise to power, is that book burning on Opernplatz, which is now Bebelplatz. Um, books were taken from many sources to be burned there, but the f one of the first places that the Nazis raided was Hirschfeld Institute. Hirschfeld was at that time on a world tour. Uh, he was taking refuge in France at that time. Uh, but the Nazis entered the institute, they arrested the people who worked there, and they burned the case files, and they burned the books on the anthropology and history of sexuality and on kind of alternative sexualities and genders. Um, and a lot of people recently have been doing interesting work and thinking about how the fact that that was the first book burning and what that says about the kind of centrality of gender ideology to... The fascist project. Mm -hmm. And so when it came to the Knives of the Long Knives, this um, this sort of internal crackdown on the power of the SA and the start of a, um, a sort of um, deal or social compromise or contract with between the Nazis and the business leaders and uh, the capitalists, um, was the whole thing framed publicly as uh, specifically an attack on uh, a sort of homosexual underground in the SA? Um, and to what degree was, you know, how much was that an excuse, I, I guess? Um, like you said, it, it, it could have been, um, I think you're saying Goebbels later, saying it could have been an attack on the Wehrmacht just as easily. I think before answering that, it makes sense to maybe talk a little bit more about what the Night of the Long Knives was overall and kind of how it was presented overall. So it was intended by Hitler to consolidate his hold on power and to alleviate the concerns of some military leaders that uh, Reim and the SA were going to take over uh, and sort of presented a challenge to their dominance of military power. And it ended up being presented as a preventative measure against what they alleged was an imminent coup by the SA under Reim. So what was presented to the public was that the SA was going to actually take over the whole country um, and throw Hitler out of power. Um, it was not kept a secret. Um, it claimed the lives of a lot of very prominent people, so it wouldn't really be possible to keep it a secret. Um, Goering origin initially urged police stations to burn all of the documents that discussed what had happened, and Goebbels tried to prevent newspapers from publishing lists of the dead. But then in the middle of July 1934, so about two weeks after Hitler ends up announcing and justifying the purge in a nationally broadcast speech, uh, where he says, quote, if anyone reproaches me and asks why I did not resort to the regular courts of justice, all I can say is this. In this hour, I was responsible for the fate of the German people, and thereby I became the supreme judge of the people. I gave the order to shoot the ringleaders in this treason, and I further gave the order to cauterize down to the raw flesh the ulcers of this poisoning of the wells in our domestic life, which I think is a quote that reveals in its use of language how these kind of ideas about the body and the purity of the body are really central to um, Nazi self-conceptions and ideology. Absolutely. And and the legacy of that and, and of course, of the, the further per persecution that, that happened after they um, they strengthened their grip on power is now how traditionally, um, at least in, in uh, the Western liberal circles, um, we've conceived of the far-right's relationship to ho towards homosexuality. And so 
I think it will come as a shock, as a shock to a lot of people that the first openly gay uh, politician was a, an actual Nazi. Um, and yet, as you're saying now, it's much more common um, that there are quite prominent far-right uh, gay leaders. But do you think it's changed in that relationship in that um, it, those gay leaders are no longer masculinist, um, but have perhaps adopted um, adopted some of the sort of um, more liberal rhetoric around homosexuality as a as a racialized way to um, whip up more fear and hatred of outsiders of um, um, I mean at the moment specifically Muslims I'd, I'd, I'd say yes absolutely I mean Marhofer points out in that article about the essay um, the one that notches that it would be a mistake to talk about Rehm and the gay Nazis of the past in a sort of neat connection with the sort of today's homonormative figures. And I think it's pretty easy to draw a connection between homonationalist homonormativity, you know, a, a view of, of homosexuals that views us as being, or that wants us to be kind of good citizens within the liberal nation state with all of the racialized uh, implications that that has. And what Rehm and the other masculinists are talking about. I mean, this is a very particular view of masculinity and of its power. I mean, I think the better link to draw, or the more interesting link to draw, is to think about ongoing gay male sexual desire and to interrogate that against its fascist implications and roots, I guess you could say. I mean, this... Sure, this mask-for-mask mask ideology, this attraction to leather figures, this, um, you know, leather figures who dress up as figures of brutal authority and often as brutal state authority. I mean, people do dress up as skinheads. People do dress up as Nazis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's gay parties in Berlin where I live that use intentionally right-wing skinhead, not just skinhead in general, but right-wing skinhead and Nazi imagery uh, obviously in very coded ways because the use of explicit Nazi imagery is illegal in Germany, um, to kind of advertise that they are hard parties or sexy parties or kinky parties. Mm -hmm. And while I'm not saying that everyone who enjoys those sexual aesthetics is a fascist, I think interrogating the origins of those desires is interesting and important and thinking about how this kind of ongoing ideology of gay masculinism has killed us throughout history in different ways. And sometimes killing us looks like the bringing to power of this very explicitly right-wing movement. And sometimes killing us looks like instigating meth addictions and instigating body dysmorphia and all these other things. And again, I, I'm not comparing uh, gay male body dysmorphia to the Nazis, no. but I'm just saying that I think these roots lead to a lot of problems that we have confronted in the past and continue to confront. Yeah, I guess, um, I guess often that the sort of this, uh, this these same aesthetics are now co-opted within the gay movement, whether that's Tom of Finland or, or onwards. Are often mm -hmm. uh, quite quickly written down as um, or described as ironic or as subversive, and taking these sort of masculine uh, fascist uh, fascist identities and then subverting them through homosexuality. But actually, it's not quite as easy as that because. Because within those aesthetics and the rise of, of of fascism, there was homosexual masculinist tendencies, and those masculine masculinist tendencies have continued unabated. Yeah, I think that's correct. And Jack Halberstam has written really well on that 
um, among other people. So if people are curious about more sort of hardcore theory on the relationships between these things, I think that's a good place for them to go. So I think that brings our discussion of Ernst Heim to a close, and I think we would both agree that he was a very bad gay indeed, about as bad a gay as you can get. Yeah, I vote bad gay. I vote very, very bad gay. I want to briefly mention two other uh, articles that informed the research for this and that might be interesting for folks who want to read more. There's an article by Eleanor Hancock from the Journal of the History of Sexuality called Only the Real, the True, the Masculine Held Its Value, Ernst Heim, Masculinity and Male Homosexuality. Um, and also an article by Boaz Neumann from New German Critique called the, Phen the Phenomenology of the German People's Body, Volkskörper, and the Extermination of the Jewish Body. Um, and I think both of those are really interesting um, and brilliant and deserve reading by people who are interested in these subjects. So this has been Bad Gays Podcasts. If you want to support us, you can visit our Patreon. We've talked about it earlier in the show. And you can follow us on Twitter at Bad Gays Pod. Uh, I'm at Hugh Lemmy, H-U-W-L-E-M-M-E-Y. And H for our American listeners is H. And I'm at Ben Writes Things, B-E-N Writes Things. Thank you so much. Thank you. I can't believe you slagged off the way I pronounce H. H.